Let us pray. Father, that is our desire this morning that you would speak. Our desire is that we would know you better, we would love you more, we would obey you more fully. To that end, I pray that, Lord, you would help me to speak with clarity. I pray that your spirit would be at work, that you would prepare our hearts to receive, and that you would be glorified and your people edified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. As you have heard, my name is Emeka, and I serve as one of the elders at ECCD. It is great to be back with you here at Grace Sharjah. And I bring you warm greetings from the saints at ECCD. I can assure you that we are encouraged, Grace Sharjah, by your steadfastness and by your faithfulness to the gospel. And we count it a privilege that we can partner with you and that we can support the work that the Lord is doing here at Grace Charger. I assure you that we remember you often in our Sunday morning prayers. And I count it a privilege to be able to serve you by bringing you the word this morning. And this morning we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. We'll be reading from verses 14 to 32. But as you turn there, let me describe a scene and, let, and you listen to see if it sounds familiar to you. So it is the last few seconds of the game. The stakes couldn't be higher. There is only one more chance to take the shot that could win them the game. They are the underdogs, and no one ever thought that they would make it so far. The coach grabs a, a player by the shoulder, looks him in the eye, and says, you can do this. You only have to believe in yourself. The player takes the shot, and scores, the team wins. There are victory celebrations as the player is hoisted high. Well, I actually didn't pick that scene from any particular movie, but you have likely watched a movie or read a book with that kind of storyline at some point. The underdogs overcoming great odds to achieve success. And the theme is often that to do this, you only have to believe in yourself. Have faith in yourself and you can achieve great things. Now, faith in yourself is not just a theme in Hollywood movies. It is also talked about in motivational talks, and it's written about in self-help books. There are probably dozens of books written on this top topic. What is faith, anyways? Now, if you had a look at the dictionary, faith simply means trust. It means complete trust in something or in someone. But well, that word faith is often used in different ways in our day. Often, faith is pitted against facts, okay? Some would say that faith is trust without any basis in reality. Take a leap of faith, some would say. That is, no need to consider whether what you're doing is reasonable, just act. Faith, they would say, has no foundation in reality. Faith, that word faith, also has religious overtones in our day. We speak of people of different faiths, that is, people who follow different religious doctrines. But if, as we said earlier, faith simply means trust, then we all have had to exercise faith or trust in some, somebody or something at some point in our lives. Particularly when we go through challenges, we would have had to trust in our family, in our friends, in our finances, in modern medicine, or something to get us through. 
And sometimes these objects of our faith have proved reliable in our times of need, but other times they have failed us. I wonder if in your life you have found something or someone that you trust completely and which you believe will never let you down. Is there something that you lean all your hopes and expectations on? Would you say that really when push, push comes to shove, like in the movies, you ultimately only trust yourself? Perhaps your faith in yourself, in your abilities, is what has brought you so far. It is what has brought you success in your life. Or maybe, deep within you, you lean all your hopes and expectations on the fact that you are a good person. Maybe you believe that the good things that you have done means that things will ultimately work out for you in the end. Or finally, maybe you don't believe that there is anything or anyone that you can completely trust. Everyone and everything will let you down in the end, you think. Perhaps you have had faith in people who have disappointed you and you are suspicious that anyone is worthy of your trust anymore. Well, this morning we're going to spend some time reading about some people in the Bible and their struggles with faith, their struggles trusting. Now, the verses that come before our passage this morning actually describe the transfiguration of Jesus at the top of a mountain. The Gospel writer tells us that for a moment, the veil was drawn back and Jesus' divine nature was revealed to his inner circle. Though he walked with them and talked with them, the disciples got to see that Jesus was no mere man. Peter, James, and John then conversed with Jesus as they descended the mountain, and our passage picks it up when all of them reached the base of that mountain. So please turn to Mark chapter 9, if you're not there already. We're going to be reading from verse 14. Mark 9, 14. This is the word of God. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to meet him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, but he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, 
the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And there are three things that we're going to consider from our text this morning. We're going to see the disciples' lack of faith, a father's wavering faith, and the foundation for your faith. So those would be the three subheadings for this morning. The, the disciples' lack of faith, a father's wavering faith, and the foundation for your faith. So first, the disciples' lack of faith. Now, as they, as they walked down from the mountain with Jesus after the transfiguration, the minds of Peter, James, and John must have been reeling from what they had just seen and heard. But when they reached the bottom of the mountain, what was waiting for them there was also probably far from what they had expected. Have a look at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So picture the scene. A large crowd of people at the base of the mountain. The nine disciples who were left behind are facing off to a group of scribes. Now the, the scribes were, were religious people from the ter- temple in Jerusalem. And the scribes are arguing with them. Probably voices are raised. Maybe, maybe tempers are flaring. And surrounding the, the disciples and the scribes are a crowd of people who are watching intently. Some of them are possibly interrupting, shouting in their own opinion. It is chaos. And then somebody notices Jesus approaching and the, the crowd surges towards Jesus. And the presence of Jesus always had this effect on the crowds. They, they were expectant that something would happen. They wanted to hear what Jesus would say. And Jesus' first words are to the scribes. What are you arguing about with them? But before the scribes could reply, a voice speaks up from the crowd. And that voice is probably breaking with emotion. Have a look at verse 17. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. So it is a father speaking. It is easy to imagine his distress and his desperation. His son, he says, is possessed by an evil spirit that prevents him from speaking. And then what he goes on to describe is very disturbing. Verse 18 And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Now in the parallel account in Matthew 17, the writer describes the boy as having seizures. Now, violent convulsions, gnashing of the teeth, foaming at the mouth, and total exhaustion are symptoms of the major form of a medical condition called epilepsy. Now, however, what was happening to this boy was not just a chronic nervous disorder. The father knew, and the Bible portrays this boy's convulsions as being caused by an evil spirit. And the father was desperate. He was fearful for his son. He goes on to say, So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. The father had come to find Jesus. He had likely heard of Jesus casting out evil spirits before, but Jesus at that point was nowhere to be found. So he had turned to Jesus' disciples. Surely they would be able to help him, but they were not able to cast out the evil spirit. And that is actually surprising, because we read this in, earlier on in the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, and he, that is Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. 
And then further on in Mark 6, verse 13, we read, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the disciples had cast out evil spirits before. But in this instance, they had been able to cast out the evil spirit that was tormenting this boy. They had failed. Why was that? Well, the disciples themselves wanted to know. They wanted to know why. So have a look down at verse 28. Verse 28, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So later in the day, when all the crowds had dispersed, the disciples came to Jesus, probably feeling confused and defeated. They asked him why they had failed to cast out the evil spirit. And Jesus' answer is intriguing. He says, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. But surely, we say, the disciples must have prayed. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly the reason they hadn't prayed. Perhaps they had developed an attitude of self-confidence as they had ordered the demon out of the boy. Perhaps they had forgotten that the authority over evil spirits did not come from themselves, but ultimately from Jesus. Or maybe they were distracted by the crowds and the scribes and the noise and the disciples had forgotten to pray. Or maybe they had started to pray, but when nothing had happened, when the evil spirit had not left, they had stopped praying. We don't know for sure. Well, however it happened, Jesus was clear that the reason they had failed was because they had failed to pray. But let's not judge the disciples too harshly. Because isn't our prayer life often like theirs? Okay, often when things are going smoothly and there are no problems in our lives, don't we also get confident in ourselves? Okay, don't we also forget how much we need the Lord and forget to pray? Don't we also often get distracted by busyness and social media and forget to pray? Okay, don't we also fail to persist in prayer? But don't miss what Jesus says here. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Brothers and sisters, there are some things in your life that God has ordained will only be resolved by your prayer. Okay, God's sovereignty doesn't mean that we don't need to pray. The prayer, prayer is the means that God has ordained to carry out His purposes. Our prayerlessness, like that of the disciples, is evidence of our lack of faith. Have a look at verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus said that they were faithless. The disciples had often seen Jesus go off alone to pray. They knew how dependent Jesus was on praying to his heavenly Father. Yet when the time had come, they had not prayed. But did you notice that Jesus was not only speaking to the disciples? He says, O faithless generation, the crowds around him were not exempt. Despite their excitement at seeing him, despite their sense of expectation, Jesus knew that they were not fundamentally, they did not fundamentally believe in who Jesus was and what he had come to accomplish. So the disciples lacked faith. The crowds around them and the scribes lacked faith. But what about the father who had brought, brought his son to Jesus? What about him? So let's consider our second point, 
a father's wavering faith. Now at the end of verse 19, Jesus says, bring him to me. So you can imagine the crowd parting as the boy was led to Jesus. And then we read this from verse 20. Have a look at verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. So we read that as soon as the evil spirit saw, the, saw Jesus, it immediately became even more aggressive and the boy had another convulsion. But let's, let's pause here for a minute. I wonder what your reaction is to reading about evil spirits or demons in the Bible. I mean, we live in the 21st century. Isn't talk about evil spirits just unscientific, primitive, and superstitious? Well, the Bible speaks matter-of-factly about demons. The Bible is clear that there are malevolent, purposeful, personal agents that, that are at work in the world and that are opposed to God and to his people. The devil and his army were active in the days of Jesus, and they are active today. Now, it is likely that we read of more obvious demonic activity in the Gospels because the demons came out of hiding in response to the presence of Jesus, just like the negative side of a magnet is drawn to the positive side. Ephesians 6 tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, we are unlikely to encounter demonic activity in the form that we read of in our text this morning, but 1 Peter 5.8 tells us to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, of course, it is easy to go overboard on this and to find a devil under every bush and to start blaming things on supernatural forces when we are really responsible. So how are we to think about evil spirits and demonic activity in our day and age? Well, C.S. Lewis's quote on this topic is helpful. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So here are four quick thoughts on the activity of the devil and demons that we should be aware of in our day and which should inform how we pray. First, in 2 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church that they should not be outwitted by Satan and they should not be ignorant of his designs. And he says this in the context of ensuring that there was forgiveness and unity in that church. Be aware that the devil loves disunity. He thrives when there is lack of forgiveness and lingering resentment in relationships in a church. The devil seeks to undermine unity in the church, Grace Charger. As a church, pray that you would have hearts that are quick to forgive each other. Second thought. In 2 Corinthians 4, the Bible speaks of the devil blinding the minds of unbelievers to the gospel. Be aware that the devil is in active opposition to the gospel. Okay, he distracts unbelievers, unbelievers when the gospel is presented. He stirs up philosophies and worldviews that will cause people to be hostile to the truth of the gospel. The devil blinds the mind of unbelievers to the gospel. So pray that God would shine in the hearts of unbelievers the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Third thought. 
In the book of 1 Peter, the apostle speaks of the devil prowling like a roaring lion in the context of persecution of the church. The devil and demons are in active opposition to the people of God. So pray for frontline missionaries who suffer persecution and are often in physical danger. Pray for brothers and sisters who you know are undergoing persecution in the workplace. Final thought. Don't be preoccupied with the devil. Be preoccupied with God. Okay, the more we know God and love God and obey God, the more we will be aware of the schemes of the evil one and we will not fall prey to them. Don't fear demons or the devil. Their final destruction is certain. Okay, trust in the power and love of God and remember that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And there's more that we could say about this topic, but for now, it is enough to note the hostility of this evil spirit towards Jesus, such that once it saw Jesus, it tormented this poor boy even more. When Jesus sees this, he turns and addresses the boy's father. Have a look at verse 21. Verse 21, And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So we learn that this boy has, this spirit has been assailing the boy from childhood. The parallel passage in Luke tells us that this boy was the man's only son. So can you imagine the pain of the parents as they had seen their son suffer for so many years? The demon constantly trying to harm him. Now they had probably sought out many healers over the years to no avail. And now they had come to Jesus. And the father appeals to Jesus' compassion. If you can do anything, help us. And how does Jesus respond? Have a look at verse 23. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now it's interesting, isn't it? That whilst the boy is convulsing, and people are crowding around, Jesus is not distracted by that. Okay, he is most interested in what is going on in the Father's heart. Okay, Jesus knows that what is going on around us is not as important as what is going on within us. Okay, we don't usually think that way, do we? Okay, when we come to God, we are often most interested in God fixing our problems, but God is most interested in fixing our hearts our motives, our desires, our faith. We are most concerned that this prayer or that request would be answered now. Often, God would have us slow down and consider the state of our hearts before him. So, Jesus probes what is going on in the Father's heart as he challenges the Father on his faith. If you can, Jesus says, all things are possible for the one who believes. What does Jesus mean when he says all things are possible for those who believe. Does that mean that our faith is some sort of power that allows us to do anything that we set our minds on? Does that mean that if we only believe strong enough, then we can reorder the circumstances in our lives? No, that's not what that means. The power is not in our faith itself, per se. No, the power is in the one who is the object of our faith. Jesus is asking, do you believe that all things are possible for me? Faith in God, trusting in God, connects us to the one for whom all things are possible. All things are possible for God. 
as Christians, we can be sure that whatever happens in our lives is not because of some inability on the part of God. There is nothing that God cannot do. You know, in, in Mark chapter 1, a leper came to Jesus. He knelt before him and he said, If you will, you can make me clean. And that was a declaration of faith. And immediately he received Jesus' healing touch. But here the father of this afflicted boy said to Jesus, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now there is faith in this request, but there is also unbelief. Part of him doesn't expect Jesus will be any more successful than the others had been. So Jesus rebukes him. And the response is immediate from the father. Jesus' words had caught him to the heart. Have a look at the father's response to Jesus' words. Have a look at verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, I do believe, I do believe that you can do all things. I have heard about your casting out demons before. I have heard about all your miracles. There has never been a teacher like you in all of Israel. I believe. But my faith is not as it should be. Okay, mixed in with my faith is unbelief. My son has suffered so long, it is hard to believe that he will ever be free. We have tried so many healers and all have failed. Why should this be any different? Even your disciples failed us a short while ago. Jesus, help my unbelief. Apparently, belief and unbelief can exist side by side. Okay, like this father, followers of Jesus often have faith and doubt. Belief and unbelief present in us at the same time. Now, now we need to be careful as we speak of unbelief to Christians that are going through seasons of suffering in their lives. Because some of us here may be, be feeling battered and bruised by the trials in our lives. Jesus is a good and gentle shepherd to his children that are struggling. He will not break a bruised reed nor quench a faintly burning wick. Brother and sister, if that is you, if you are going through a season of suffering and you are struggling to hold on to God's hand amidst the storms of your life, be assured that God is holding on to your hand and he will never let you go. Okay, be assured that though your faith feels weak, your Savior is strong. And you, as you cry out to the Lord to strengthen your faith, be sure that our tender Savior will carry you in your weakness. But I don't believe that the Father's weakness is the primary focus of this passage. In this passage, Jesus is rebuking this Father for his lack of faith. And we know this because in the Gospels, Jesus consistently affirms those who express faith and rebukes those who express doubt and unbelief. And just as Jesus gently rebukes the unbelief in this Father's heart, he would rebuke the unbelief in our hearts. You see, this father is not too different from us. Like this father, belief and unbelief often exist side by side in our hearts. Unbelief is often the hidden root beneath a variety of different sins in our hearts. And understanding this is an important part in our being able to weed them out of our soul. Lord, I believe I do believe that through Christ I have been adopted into your family and my true identity is who I am in Christ. But often I act as if I don't believe that. 
Often I spend my time worrying about what others think of me and my actions are guided by the fear of man. Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, I do believe, I truly believe that Jesus is the only way that people can be saved. But yet I hesitate to share the gospel to my co-workers or to invite them to church when I get the opportunity. Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, I do believe that you are sovereign. I believe that nothing happens outside your will. But Lord, I still worry. I still fret. I'm still gripped by anxiety. Lord, help my unbelief. Sometimes the unbelief in our hearts is subtle and deep-seated, like when we don't believe that the blood of Jesus is really enough to cover even that horrible sin in our past. Sometimes the unbelief is obvious, like believing that all things work out for our good, but grumbling when our day hasn't gone the way we had planned. And that tussle between belief and unbelief is where we often are in our day-to-day lives as Christians. So what do we do about our unbelief? Do we just accept that that is just the life of a Christian? No, brother and sister. Just as you would fight lust or anger, fight unbelief. Don't get comfortable with unbelief in your heart, no matter what form it shows itself. As Paul exhorted exhorted Timothy, we are called to fight the good fight of faith. We are to listen to the warning of the Apostle James and not be double-minded and tossed around by the wind. We are to grow in our faith. We we are to aim to have the, the faith of Abraham. The Bible tells us about Abraham in Romans 4 that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Brothers and sisters, we are called to grow in our faith. From believing God's promise that in Christ our sins are forgiven to his promise that he will never leave nor forsake us. From trusting his goodness and his wisdom even when we don't understand what's going on to having faith that God is able to save even the most unlikely sinner. We are called to grow in our faith. And how do we do this? Well, we do what this father did. First, we repent. When the Lord in his kindness rebukes unbelief in our hearts, when we discover unbelief concealed in our hearts, we repent. As we grow in our faith, repentance will often mark our prayers. What else do we do? Well, we we cry for help. Forgive me and help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Help me overcome it. Help me grow in faith in this aspect of my life. Turn my unbelief into faith. And one way the Lord helps our unbelief is through our brothers and our sisters in the local church. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sometimes when we are struggling to believe a particular promise of God, we also need to cry out to our brother or sister in church to help us by praying with us. Brother, I am struggling to believe that I will ever overcome this besetting sin. I have fallen yet again. I am struggling to believe that I can ever have victory over this sin. Please pray for me. Please pray that the Lord would strengthen my faith. 
Sister, I am so worried about our family's financial situation. Would you please pray that I would trust God to take care of us? Please pray that the Lord would strengthen my faith. Exalt one another with humility, patiently encourage and build one another up. Grace Charger. Brothers and sisters, don't accept the lie that it is okay to be perpetually weak and stumbling in your faith. No, use the means of grace that God has provided so that you will become increasingly stable, steadfast, unshakable, and never shifting from the hope of the gospel. We are called to grow in maturity. We are called to grow in our faith. And over time, we will grow. Okay, as we receive the Lord's rebuke for our unbelief, as we repent and the Lord helps us, we will grow. Okay, the promises of God will slowly become more real to us than the promises of this world. Okay, we will trust God more and more amidst the storms of life. We will find our identity more and more in Christ. The Lord will sanctify his people. Jesus is merciful despite our unbelief. Have a look at the mercy Jesus showed this father despite his wavering faith. Have a look at verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. So the, the crowd surged even more. More people were running to join the crowd, and Jesus rebuked the evil spirit. Despite this father's wavering faith, Jesus still showed mercy to his father, to the father and to his son. Jesus is merciful. And Jesus is mighty. Jesus commands even the vilest of evil, evil spirits, and they have no choice but to obey him. Where his disciples had failed, Jesus succeeded. But notice what happens after Jesus commands the evil spirit to leave the boy. It seems that initially, things got worse. Have a look at verse 26. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. The battle with the devil is real and he will not go without a fight. But praise God that all spirits must obey the commands of Jesus Christ. Verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. All Christians have victory over the devil through Jesus. Earlier this morning, we sang from Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress. In it, he writes, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. One little word from Jesus sent the evil spirit away. Jesus is the one true Savior who can bring deliverance. Okay, Jesus is the one we can trust in our troubles, in our trials, and even in our weakness and our sin. Jesus alone is the worthy recipient of our faith. And the father of the boy had come to Jesus, pleading for his son to be delivered. Jesus had mercy on them. And the, the, the father left with his son healed. And even more importantly, the father left with his faith in Jesus strengthened. 
But what about us? Okay. How do we know that our fight for faith is worth it? Okay. Or what about when life spins out of control or when the day-to-day challenges of life in this broken world bring us down? How do we know for certain that Jesus alone is the one that we should have faith in? I mean, this father eventually had his prayer answered. He got his son back. But what about when we know that God can answer our prayers, but he chooses not to answer our prayers? What happens to our faith then? That brings us to our third and final point, the foundation for your faith. Have a look at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now in the book of Mark, we read of Jesus teaching his disciples many things. Okay, but there was one thing that he repeatedly mentioned to them. Jesus had spoken to Peter and James and John about this as they came down the mountain. And now as they all moved from this incident with the father and his son, Jesus spoke about it again. You see, there was one thing Jesus wanted his disciples to know. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he'll rise. Jesus wanted them to know he would be delivered into the hands of men. Delivered by whom? You know, in one sense, it was the Jews that gave Jesus up. In Acts 3.13, Peter tells the Jews, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. So his own people delivered him up to the Gentiles to be crucified. In another sense, it was Judas who delivered Jesus to be crucified. Judas, one of his own friends, betrayed him and delivered him to be killed. But you know, ultimately... It was God himself that, that delivered Jesus into the hands of men. Okay, in Acts 3 verse 23, we read this. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was delivered up according to the plan of God. Okay, it was always the plan for Jesus to die. But why? Was his death necessary? Because of us. Because of you and I. All of mankind have sinned grievously against the Holy God. You see, our lack of faith in the Almighty God is not just weakness that we need help with, it is also sin that we deserve judgment for. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve chose not to believe God. They chose to distrust God. And in Romans 14, Paul says that all that is not from faith is sin. Now, if a sheikh came to you and offered to do you a favor, and he promised you on his honor to see you through, and you said to him, you know, I don't think I can trust you. What you have done is insulted his integrity and robbed him of his honor. And that is what all mankind does when we distrust God. When the infinitely trustworthy, infinitely wise God offers himself to us as the one who will satisfy us and we do not believe him, 
When he promises that he will take care of us and we do not have faith in his promises, that is an insult to him. And for that, we all deserve his judgment. But rather than judging us, God delivered Jesus into the hands of men to take the judgment that we deserve for our unbelief. Jesus was shamefully treated and then hung on a Roman cross to die. Even more than his physical suffering, Jesus bore the wrath of God on behalf of all those who would look to him. You know, Jesus was the one who alone always had faith in his Father. Jesus was the one who alone always had complete trust in his Father, but he bore the punishment for the unbelief of all those who would look to him for forgiveness. On the cross also, Jesus decisively defeated the devil and all demons. Jesus taught his disciples that he would be delivered into the hands of men. He taught them that he would be killed. But he also wanted them to know that after three days, he would rise again. Praise God that Jesus did not stay dead. Okay, after three days, he rose again, a sign that his sacrifice had been accepted by God. Perhaps you're here and you are not a follow, follower of Jesus. We are so glad that you are here with us. Maybe you've had many conversations with your Christian friends, and maybe at some point you've shrugged and you've said to your friend, I wish I had your faith. You know, as you've seen, our faith is often not as it should be. But the object of our faith never shifts. Okay? My friend, for you, what is most important is not the strength of your faith. It is the object of your faith, faith that will save you. Okay, Christians are people who have found the one who alone is worthy of our faith. My Christian friend, my non-Christian friend, the Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith in Jesus, nothing that you do pleases God. Not even your most righteous deeds please God until you have trusted in the one who he has provided to save you from your sin. Jesus, the Son of God, left his throne in heaven. He became a man and he died to bear the punishment for rebellious creatures. What kind of God does that? That is a God that you can trust with everything. Have faith in Jesus. My Christian brother and sister, this is the foundation for your faith. Okay, ultimately, we are saved not because we have great faith, but because we have a great Savior. Even when we do falter and fall into unbelief, we have a Savior so great that in His death, He took the penalty for our unbelief. We are saved as we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. In the rigors of sanctification, as well as during trials and suffering, because of Jesus' death, we know that God is always for us. Romans 8.32 he, he, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. Whether he gives us trials or blessings, we can trust in God's good purposes for us because he gave up his son for us. He delivered his son into the hands of men for us. And brothers and sisters, we can keep striving to grow in our faith. We can have faith in Jesus in the midst 
of our trials, in the midst of our suffering, because in three days he rose from the dead. We have faith in Jesus because we know that it will be all right in the end. Okay, at the end, all our suffering and our fears will be over. At the end, we will not have to fight for faith because our faith will finally be turned to sight as we too are resurrected. In our text, Jesus raises, raised that boy who appeared death, dead. And that was a picture of the resurrection that would soon happen to Jesus. And then Jesus was raised to life three days after his death. That is a promise of the resurrection that will one day happen to us. Brothers and sisters, it will be all right in the end when Jesus returns. Verse 32, But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. The disciples still did not understand what Jesus meant. One day they would understand. After Jesus rose from the dead, they finally understood and they went around preaching the good news of what Jesus had done. In the world that we live in, the underdog does not always win. In the real world, having faith in yourself only carries you so far until you fail. In the real world, people will let you down, beauty fades, money runs out, and we all eventually die. But is there someone that we can have faith in for the trials in our lives as well as for the destiny of our souls? Is there someone we can have faith in who can do all things, who has defeated the devil, who is almighty, and yet who is patient and gentle with us in our weakness and in our sin, and who indeed died for our sins? Yes, there is. It is Jesus. Have faith in Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus who died to take the punishment that we deserve for our unbelief. Lord, we praise you because we know that even the faith to trust in Jesus as our Savior comes from you. And Lord, even as you call us to grow in our faith, would you please help us? Would you help our unbelief? Would you help us to overcome our unbelief and to grow in our faith? Would you help us to see that Jesus is worthy of our trust in every aspect of our lives? Would you please help us to persevere in faith until that day when our faith is turned to sight, until that day when we are with you forever? In Jesus' name, amen.